Chapter Twenty Two of One Commonplace Day by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Storm and Calm. A fierce November wind was blowing, which made the gentlemen who were hurrying through the streets of Chicago button their overcoats about them. Cold enough for January, said one and another, bowing hurriedly as they passed though what they meant by that expression is doubtful, as everybody knows that it can be as cold in Chicago in November as January. But the wind was certainly piercing. Altogether, it was not such a night as would be likely to find one loitering on the street, in contemplative mood, over water which rolled sluggishly below, impeded by gathering films of ice. So when Mr. Durant, hurrying home from detentions, after a late meeting, saw a young man thus standing, looking down into the black water, the very attitude arrested his attention. A street lamp was near at hand, and though the man, intent on whatever held his eyes, did not turn as Mr. Durant drew near, the light fell on his side face in such a way as to give a fair view, and the expression of it was startling to a man who had spent some years in the earnest study of faces, with a view to helping their owners in emergencies. At first he passed, then hesitated, looked back, and finally retraced his steps, and laid a firm, kind hand on the stranger's shoulder. "'Young man, that is rather a dark prospect on such a night as this. What do you find in it that interests you so?' "'That is my business,' muttered the man, and he tried to shake off the firm hand." His voice was low, but had a cadence of sullenness in it, such as is born generally both of despair and resolve. "'It is my business, too,' said Mr. Durant, speaking with cheerful promptness. "'I was sent to ask you what was the trouble, and how I could help you.' The man seemed to be arrested by this word, despite a determination not to be. He turned and gave Mr. Durant the benefit of a full view of his fierce, dark face. "'Who sent you?' he asked. The answer was given unhesitatingly. "'A friend of yours, who is more interested in you than you have any idea of. He will be glad to help you in any way that you need help, and I am glad to be his messenger. Now what can I do for you? I see you are in trouble.' Part of the trouble he suspected, and had, of course, suspected from the first. The man had been drinking, face and breath indicated this. But he was not exactly intoxicated, and there was more in his face than the passing whim of a drunken man. Mr. Durant, who had been perilously near to such places, could have given unhesitating testimony to the belief that the dark water held the stranger's gaze, because it said to him that one plunge in the night and the darkness, and all this certainty of trouble would be over." there is a certain form of cowardice well known to drinking men, which shrinks only from the known, and is willing to plunge desperately and hopelessly into the darkness of the future world, to get rid of the miseries of to-day. "'Come,' he said, giving a gentle pressure to the arm on which his hand rested, "'let us walk along out of this wind. It sweeps around the corner fiercely. You can tell me as we go what it is you need.' "'You cannot help me,' the man said. "'There is no help for me in this world.' Nevertheless, he turned and walked with the unknown friend, impelled, apparently, by the stronger will against his judgment, or at least his inclination. "'That is a mistake,' was the cheery answer. 
I told you you had a friend who was willing to help you, no matter what the circumstances. I have also to tell you that he has the power to help. But you must confide in him, you know. It was a strange walk. Mr. Durant, who had taken many strange ones during the latter years of his life, felt that none would exceed this. He seemed to have a certain degree of power over this young man, enough to move him forward at least, and he, on his part, seemed impelled by a force outside of himself to go with this man and watch him and shield him from something or someone, himself probably, since himself, in this mood at least, could be his worst enemy but he had no idea where to take him, nor what to do next, if the man would only make some explanation of the fierce resolve in his face. "'I wish you would let me alone,' the stranger said at last, stopping in the street, trying to draw away his arm, making an effort to turn back. "'What business have you to take hold of me in this way and lead me along? I had about decided it when you interfered.' "'I know you had,' and it is the worst decision you ever made in your life, and you know you have made a great many. I came just in time to save you. I was sent, I tell you, and you won't confide in a friend who is willing and able to help you out. Two fashionably dressed young men were nearing them, walking with unsteady steps and talking loud, their voices thick and their laughter silly and meaningless. Victims they were to the general curse." They were dressed as though they might very recently have come from some fashionable gathering, and the probabilities were strong that they had but lately left the petted darling of some sheltered home to indulge outside tastes which had been roused anew in some fashionable social gathering. "'Halloo!' said one, speaking thickly. "'Here's Airedale. What's up, old fellow? Look as though you had met a ghost, and it had you by the buttonhole.' Then they passed, the air filled with their vapid laughter. But Mr. Durant almost stopped in the street. He felt a shock like that of an electric battery in his veins. Airedale, that uncommon name, the one he had especially laid away in his memory. Three days he had been in Chicago, and three hours at least he had given to hunting for a young man who bore that name, unable, so far, to get any clue to his whereabouts. He had left the firm which had originally employed him, and gone, no one in that establishment seemed to know whither. Was this the object of his search? If so, he could well account for the impelling power which said, Hold this man, don't let him escape your sympathy and your help. For since the name was written in his notebook, it had been added to his prayer, until he began to feel within him an intense desire to find the man and to help him if he needed help. This young man, whom he was drawing on by sheer force of will, was certainly in need of help, was certainly in great and imminent danger, from himself if from no one else. Could he be the Airedale of his prayers? What did the Lord want him to do here and now if this were so? He hesitated, he shrank from it, it seemed a breach of trust, and yet it forced itself upon him as the thing to do. In some way he must win this man's confidence. Airedale, he said, repeating the name as though he had not a doubt of the person to whom it belonged, you think I am a stranger, that I do not know anything about you. You are mistaken. I know two or three things about you, beside the fact that you are just now sorely in need of a friend. 
I will tell you of someone else whom I know, and then you may decide to what extent you can trust me. I know Mildred Powers. He could feel the start, and the tremor which ran through the man's frame, yet he replied quickly and fiercely, I don't want to hear anything about her. I don't wonder at that, my friend. You are disgracing her friendship, and you know it. Still, there is a chance to retrieve the past, and live so that you will not be ashamed to hear the name of a good woman mentioned. No, there isn't. You don't know what you are talking about. I've gone beyond the chance. No, you haven't. I know just what I am talking about, and I know you are talking nonsense. I tell you there is a chance to win the respect of all who now despise you. I am not talking in the dark. I don't care what your past is. I bring you offers of help powerful enough to blot out the past. The poor, confused brain of the only half-sober man was impressed in spite apparently of his effort to struggle against the impression. During this time they had been walking somewhat rapidly. The fierceness of the wind naturally hastened the steps of all walkers that evening, and Mr. Durant's force of character hastened the steps of his faltering companion. They were nearing the former's boarding-house. "'Come up into my room,' Mr. Durant said, as he caught sight of the familiar corner. "'I want to talk with you, to tell you something, just as soon as you are able to hear it. You need not be afraid. I will see that you are shielded from observation if you choose.' I assure you that you may trust me. For the man was holding back, trying to withdraw his arm. It is too cold to walk in the streets, and I have something of importance to say to you. Come, your teeth are chattering now, as if you had an ague fit. You are chilled through. My room is warm, and there is nobody in it. I have a pass-key. And with one firm hand still on the arm of the half-crazed young man, he contrived to unlock the door and draw his companion within the hall, apparently more by force of will than by physical effort, though in going upstairs the latter was needed. The man leaned heavily against his guide, and groaned as if in pain. By the time his own door was reached, and he was with nervous haste applying the key, Mr. Durant felt by the dead weight against him, and the heavy breathing, that something more than nervous terror or the exhaustion of liquor was upon his companion. Indeed, by the time he had succeeded in dragging the poor fellow to the bed, and placing pillows under his head, he saw that he was utterly unconscious, not from the stupor of liquor, but from some more immediately alarming cause. He rang the bell sharply, and sent for a physician, and ordered restoratives of one sort and another, and worked bravely and well for the life of the man thus strangely thrown into his care. And this was the very night in which Kate Hartzell had drank her glass of milk, and nibbled her biscuit from Miss Wainwright's hand, and taken her strong tonic at the hands of Mr. Cleveland, and cried. I presume the milk and the biscuits and the night of unbroken rest helped Kate Hartzell back to common sense. Certainly the tonic did. The sun shone when she awoke next morning. The air was clear and cold. Kate opened her window wide, and took in the crisp, frosty air, and felt that her pulses were steadier than they had been in some time, and her eyes wider open. She began to understand something of the meaning of her few past days of experience. She was a rebel, that much was plain, and she had not imagined it before. 
it had seemed to her so strange so unaccountable so cruel that on the very evening when she had first thrilled with the desire and the determination to save her father he should have been thrown beyond her grasp why could not god have shielded him from that blow why could he not have given her a chance to try she had been wicked not to try before she knew that and she asked to be forgiven but was it like god to take away her opportunity the moment he had opened her eyes to the fact that there was an opportunity was not this very flash of hope for her poor father a heaven-sent thought in answer to her prayer she had supposed so and mr cleveland had seemed to suppose so when she spoke to him was it possible that god meant only a thrust in the shape of that terrible it might have been she did not and could not understand it you are not to understand that all these thoughts had taken clear and logical shape in kate hartzell's brain they had simply hovered around her during those nights of hopeless waiting and watching she would have been shocked had she realized half their import she was shocked this morning when she saw them in the full light of the tonic which had hurt so the night before she was certainly a rebel against the ways of god what else could these thoughts mean shall not the judge of all the earth do right had she really presumed to dictate to god the way in which he should answer her prayer for her father but could this be an answer here was her father apparently going down to the grave in darkness and silence going as he had lived no chance to right the fearful wrongs of his life and she god's child had begged and prayed him now that he had opened her eyes to her duty to give her chances to work well what of it all suppose god saw that the only way to reach joel hartzell was to place him in unconsciousness on this bed of pain but could he be reached in this way she did not know did not god if there were any way for god to reach joel hartzell since he had given jesus up to death for joel hartzell's sake would he not reach him and if joel hartzell in his blindness would not be reached should she blame god she had cried at first over the sharpness of the tonic which seemed to rasp into her very soul then she had been startled and frightened over the power of the truth which it revealed to her no she had not trusted god on the contrary she had felt herself and her father cruelly treated by him she crept out of her bed to her knees somewhere toward midnight when the strength of this humiliation came to her and cried to her father in heaven not to spare the earthly father but to forgive the rebel child which had presumed to be wiser than father and saviour after that she had slept a long sound healthful sleep and this morning she had awakened calm and brave though he slay me yet will i trust in him she did not think of the verse but something of its spirit was in her thoughts yes though joe hartzell never spoke a word on earth again as seemed altogether probable she would understand that god had done for him all that an infinite god could do she would understand that her father had chosen his portion and held to his choice even in defiance of god you wonder how she could be calm under such a thought i can tell you that it rested her it is a fearful thing for one who loves the lord to move about under the satan-inflicted torture of the thought he is cruel he is cruel kate hartzell had been under that torture for days when it lifted and she could say 
he has done right he will do right whatever comes it rested her made her strong for service she came downstairs with the assured step of one ready for the day thank you she said to miss wainwright in the hall and smiled as she spoke i did not know that one night could do so much for anybody i am ready now for work she really looks rested miss wainwright said it was half an hour afterward and she was speaking to mr cleveland he had called in his carriage with the morning mail and offered to take both kate and miss wainwright to the flats if they wished miss hartzell he said as he was helping her from the carriage holly told me to tell you that he asked his father this morning whether in cases like your father's they were always as unconscious as they seemed whether it might not be possible that your father knew something of what went on about him at times and the doctor replied it was quite possible holly seemed to think it might comfort you to know this it does said kate thank you and when he held open the door for her to pass she said again mr cleveland thank you this time she did not mean for the information from holly nor yet for the ride home but she left him to think what he would and passed on with miss wainwright into the room and to her father's bedside a watcher with a new lease of strength and patience End of chapter twenty two